Well, again, we're glad that you're here as we kick off a series of messages. And what we're doing is we're going through parts of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be looking at uh, some basic themes of the book. And it really led us to entitle the series, you can see here, Big Questions, because Ecclesiastes is full of them. Now, the word Ecclesiastes is the Latin translation for the Hebrew word author. Everybody say author. That's what it is. And uh, that's exactly what he calls himself. He calls himself the author or the teacher. Or sometimes the word in Hebrew is translated public teacher or commentator. Some people actually call him, some commentators call him a pundit because the writer of Ecclesiastes is a person who's commenting and noticing the way things are. He's sort of like news anchors today. He's commenting about life as it is. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 says, these are the words of the who? Come on, the the teacher. You can see that in your notes if you have them. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. And guys, there's no better place to go if you're on a spiritual search and you're trying to find faith or you're trying to find God, there's no better place to go and figure out what's out there than the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's why. This is the only book that you're going to find in the Bible that's written from the viewpoint of a skeptic, or it's actually written from the viewpoint of someone who doesn't believe. In fact, the writer is what I'd call a practical secularist. In fact, I'm going to say this to you, for those of you that have read Ecclesiastes, unless you understand what I just said, Ecclesiastes could be very confusing for you to read. And you'll say, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like the rest of the Bible. So, to help you understand it, there's a key phrase that comes up in the book dozens of times. Interestingly, you will find this phrase nowhere else in any other book of the Bible, but it is found 29 times in this particular book, and it's the term under the sun. You notice that over and over again. For example, notice Ecclesiastes 1.9. He said, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new. Come on, everybody under the sun. Nothing new. And what he means by this phrase, under the sun, if I could just explain it this way, you'll notice his way of phrasing things. I encourage you, over the next four weeks as we're going through this series, read the book of Ecclesiastes, because you're going to notice. In fact, another example is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 14. I have it coming up on the screen right here. You'll see it. He says, I have seen all things that are done under the sun, 114, he says, all of them are meaningless. They're all a chasing after the wind. Now, follow me. He's saying it's not just life that is meaningless. He's saying life is meaningless under the sun. What does that mean, under the sun? Under the sun is this idea that when you understand life, when you understand it without any reference to life above the sun or life beyond the sun, In other words, life without reference to eternity or understanding life without reference to heaven. If this life is all there is, that's what life under the sun actually means. And so what's so helpful about this guy's point of view, again, he's a practical, secular person. He's kind of like the average person today who says, you know, I can't imagine anything beyond this life. If this life is all there is, the writer's basically saying, well, then make the best of it. And based on that worldview, the writer begins to question all 
all these things. And he begins to ask the questions that drive human behavior. And he asks all these questions that help determine why we choose the things that we choose. He asks questions that lead us. In fact, he asks questions. Here's the way I'd categorize it. And we're going to cover all of these over the next four weeks. He asks questions of pleasure. He asks, where will I find happiness? What will really satisfy me? What should I look to to make me happy? He asks questions in the book about injustice. How do we deal with the injustice and the suffering in the world, this life under the sun? He asks questions of identity. That's a big topic today. Who am I supposed to be? And how do I define who I'm supposed to be? And how do I determine my sense of being, my self-worth? Or finally today, we're going to look at this question. He asks questions of achievement. Achievement meaning, what is worth doing in my life? What am I supposed to spend my life doing? What should I be doing? Now, guys, listen. You can't live without asking these kinds of questions or in some way at least wrestling with them. And by the way, guys, this is incredible because what he does, the way he looks at these questions is so unusual and it's so helpful. Why? It it eventually brings you to God. And I'll tell you why. It's because the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't just doubt belief. It's so democratic, he doubts unbelief. Now, that's something that almost nobody does. Do you realize that? Everybody doubts belief. But he doesn't just doubt belief. He doubts your unbelief. And he starts to ask hard questions about faith. And he asks hard hard questions about your doubt. And he says, well, let's just see what it says. And so what we're going to talk about today, again, is this question of achievement or work or success. Because at some point, if you read in this book, and I encourage you to this week, if you go into Ecclesiastes, at some point, the writer decides, I'm going to try letting work give meaning to my life. I'm going to let my career be the organizing principle of my life. He he does what many of us do. He says, I'm going to live a work-based life. And here's what he finds that I want to cover with you today. This is the message. He finds that a life of work is not worth it. (laughs) And then he tells us, he tells us what is worth it and why it's worth it. So I'm going to start with this first bit. You can see here, is a life of work worth it? He says no. Look at what he says. Everybody take a look at this first scripture. He says, so I hated life. Now, this is in context to his work. How many of you can agree with that statement? I, I hated life. He says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. By the way, he didn't not like his work because he wasn't successful. In fact, he was very successful. In fact, earlier in the chapter, you'll see in Ecclesiastes 2, he says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Stop right there for just a moment. You understand who's writing this? The author is actually Solomon. He is the richest man on the planet. He is so wealthy that ice doesn't exist in these days. I mean, this is thousands of years ago. So he sends servants to climb Mount Hermon to gather snow to bring him ice to have cold drinks. The man has everything. So it's not that he's not successful. 
He says, I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers. I had a harem as well. This is a man that had 300 wives and 700 concubines. He says, the delights of the heart of man, I did not deny myself. He says, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you here is, this guy's made it. In his day, in his culture, his talent and his ambition, it has produced a highly effective work-based life. So, (laughs) what happened? Because look what he says. He says, I hated all the things I had toiled for. I hated them. All these things that were under the sun. Why? Well, what he discovers is that success and achievement fails to deliver on its own terms what it promises. Because in all of his searching, see, he's seduced by the same ideas Americans are seduced by today. In fact, I want to go over some of these seductions that that work promises but under-delivers on its own terms. You ready? Here's one of these seductive promises that aren't really true. That's this. Number one, that we expect work to bring us an internal satisfaction, if you'd write that down. We expect our work should bring us internal satisfaction. Now, guys, and this is really true because if you go pick up today, if you go pick up any number of books on how to find your career, I used to be a career counselor, I know about this, and you pick up any book on how to find out what you ought to be doing, and one of the first things it's going to tell you today is that if you're going to be successful, you need to do something that you're passionate about. You need to do something that internally satisfies you. Do what fits you. You get what I'm saying? There's an internal satisfaction. And yet, the writer of Ecclesiastes here says, and what does he say? He says about what you get. Look what he says. It's a pretty interesting verse, verse 22. He says, what does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? Notice verse 23. Let's read it together. Come on, everybody. He says, all his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. He says, you really end up getting three things. What does he say they are? Well, he says you get pain, right? You see it there. He says you get grief. And then he says at night, your mind can't even rest. So what's that called? It's called worry. Let's go through these one by one. First of all, he says, for all your work, what you're going to get is pain. Now, what he means by pain is, he's talking about the sheer hurt of continual exertion. How many of you know work just wears you down? Come on, let me hear you. Can I get an amen? Work just wears you down. You know, it's really interesting because it's fascinating to me because somebody did a survey once. They asked tons of people, what if you had a 25th hour in the day? What would you do with it? If somebody was to give you one more hour in every day, how many guys would like that? He says, what would you do with it? You can probably guess what 85% of the people said. Yeah, they said sleep. (laughs) Now, do you know why they said sleep? They said sleep because work wears you down. Because work drains your strength. Now, the second thing that he says you have is, you don't just have pain, he says, but you also have grief. Now, think about it. That's really true. Why? 
because you can't work without disappointment. In a work-based life, you're always being evaluated, for example. How many of you guys like that? The constant pressure of evaluation. Or things often don't go the way that you want them to at work. There's unmet expectations at work. There's disappointments. Hey, markets do eventually go down, don't they? Or you get passed over. Somebody gets passed over. Or people complain about you. They file with HR complaint. What do you have at work? You've got pain and you've got grief. And the writer says, hey, and this is just during the daytime. Because he says, at night, your mind doesn't even rest. You've got worry. And here's the thing. You want that 25th hour. You want sleep, but you can't sleep. You lie awake at night worried about all this stuff. And what he's saying is, is that this can beat you down. That's what the writer's saying. Now, internal satisfaction. He says, no, nah, it's not going to really do that. Here's the next thing. The next reason he says a life of work isn't worth it. Write this down. is because we're seduced by the idea that we expect work to give us recognition. Write that down. We expect work to give us recognition. Now, this right here is fascinating. Because chapter 4, you look at what he says. He says, and I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. He says, this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hand and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. It's a miserable business, he says. See, guys, see what's happening here with the author, the writer, the teacher. This is something that really got him. He says, look at what we have here, guys. He says, we have a person who's successful. It seems that he has recognition. And by the way, if satisfaction is the psychological payoff of work, then recognition is the social payoff of work, but not the kind of payoff you really need. Why? Because right here, guys, this is a frightening picture. It's where he ended. Look at this. Let's look again. He says, there was a man. He was all what? Come on. He was all alone. He had neither what? Nor? And there was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. He says, for whom am I toiling? And so you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Pastor, didn't this guy have recognition? And of course the answer is yes, but not from the ones that he wants it most. And he's been destroyed by his work. His family's not there, probably because of neglect. His friends are not there. He's probably too busy for those. The friends he has at work, he's probably stepped on climbing the ladder of achievement. What's he saying? Ultimately, he's saying, don't you understand? The world of work, it promises so much, but ultimately, it utter delivers. And he says, this too is meaningless. He said it's like chasing after wind. Has anybody here ever chased after wind? You could never catch it. Now, here's the final thing he says that seduces us, but it's not true. He says, write this down. He says, we expect work 
to enable us to make a lasting contribution, if you'd write that down, to make a lasting contribution. Example, everybody always says to be successful, you want to do something that you're going to leave a legacy or you want to do something that counts, you want to make your mark. But notice here, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he actually comes in and says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's looking at life. Remember, it's life, is it life above the sun or life what? Under the sun. He's a practical secularist. So he's saying, wait a minute, leave a legacy. Do something that is lasting and counts. But he says, wait a minute, if this life is all there is, if there's no ultimate meaning in this life, ultimately, what good is my contribution? Look what he says in verse 17. He says, all of it is meaningless. The whole thing is meaningless. It's chasing after wind. And so he says, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun. Now, guys, you follow me. He had everything. And he says, I hate it all. Why? He says, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And what does he say about the ones who come after him under the sun? He says, and who knows whether he will be wise or be a fool the work into which I've poured out my effort and skill under the sun, this too is meaningless. What's he saying? This is fascinating. It's so helpful. He says, in the end, both the wise and the foolish are going to be forgotten. There's going to be no difference. You might make a mark for a little while, but eventually you're going to get swallowed up by history. Eventually, he says, if all you believe in is life under the sun, the sun's going to burn up and everything is going to be gone and nothing you do is going to matter. Isn't that sad? You know, there was an epitaph on a grave of a famous English writer, and this guy was ambitious. He was trying to make his mark. And you, you, you go and you read the epitaph that's on his gravestone. It's haunting. You know what it says? He says, I only plowed water. Now, do you get what he's saying? I only plowed water. You plow water if you put your plow in and then you pull the plow out. There's no sign that you were ever there, is there? There might be a ripple effect for a minute. But in reality, the world sweeps you away. And what the writer is saying is, if this is the nature of the world under the sun, it's meaningless. And why do it? It's not worth it. So what is worth it? Because he deals with that too. That's the second question I said. So I want to tell you what is worth it, and then I'm going to tell you why. You ready? All right, everybody say I'm ready. Here we go, all together. All right, here we go. First, we're told here that a life that is worth it is a gift from God. Write that down. A life that's worth it is a gift from God. You go back to verse 24, for example, of chapter 2, and watch this. He says, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from who? The hand of God. Now, look at that. What's the secret? He says, True satisfaction in your work. Do you know what it is? It's a person that recognizes or can see that their eat and their drink, their satisfaction in all their work, it's all from God's hand. It's a person who realizes, no, 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 here's the truth. It's not just life under the sun. It's that everything that I have is a gift from him. And without him, notice he says, for without him, who can eat? Or find enjoyment, you notice. Now, guys, this is pretty important, by the way. I want to spend a minute on this. You know why? 
Because in chapter 4, he makes the only categorical statement. In fact, it's one of the most categorical statements anywhere. You've got to see it because he's making a judgment on all of us and on every person that's ever lived. Look at what he says in chapter 4, this next scripture, if you throw this on the screen for me. He says, and I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's what? Envy of his of his neighbor. That's an interesting statement. What's he saying? You know, he's saying he's saying all the pain you go through at work, all the grief you go through, all the worry that keeps you up at night, the horrible beatdown that you take from your boss, what makes you get through it? He looks at the human heart and he says it's the need to prove yourself. He says it's the need to show yourself. It's the need to prove to others and yourself that you're worth it. And ultimately, he says, friend, I'm telling you, this too is meaningless. This too is just a chasing after the wind. Because what he's pointing out is, and you've got to get this, he's saying there is something deeply wrong in the human heart. And he says, don't you see, and friends, I would just say to you today, don't you see that the thing you're actually manufacturing is not a product. You're trying to manufacture a self. You're trying to prove yourself to yourself. I'm somebody special. I'm somebody real. See me, you want people to say. To put it the way C.S. Lewis did. Your work, in your work, you're saying all the time, I'm as good as you are. He says, don't you see, that's what you're doing. And he says, it's envy. And he says, ultimately, it's going to lead you somewhere. And guys, this is unbelievable. This is a good Bible study, isn't it? Because he looks at Ecclesiastes, and he says, ultimately, this is going to lead you one of two places. He says, it shouldn't lead you to either, but it will. If that's what motivates you, notice what he says. He says, first, there is a fool that holds his hands and ruins himself. What does that mean? A fool that holds his hands and ruins himself. It means somebody is burnt out and lazy, and they're not moving their hands. They're not doing anything. Somebody is just saying, that's it. I'm not going to do a thing. Or you can be somebody with two handfuls of toil just chasing after the wind. Who is that? Well, that's a workaholic. That's the person who's looking to work and money to satisfy them, but it never can. And what he's saying is either way, you're going to be out of balance. Don't you see? The author is saying this is two different kinds of ruin. Either you've got two handfuls of work over here and it's too much, or you've got no handfuls of work. Either way, they're both ruin. So what does he suggest? What's he put out there? Look at this. It's right in the middle. He says, better, let's read it together, better one handful with tranquility. Picture this. Now, guys, picture what he's saying here. He's saying, you still get a handful of work, good for you. Hard work is good. But on the other hand, you have tranquility. Now, what's he talking about here? He's talking about balance, of course. By the way, though, this is really good. The Hebrew word for tranquility, just look at that word. Literally in Hebrew, it means quietness. In fact, you might write down next to the word on your notes, quietness. And to be clear, it's not just quiet that he's talking about. He says, you don't need just quiet, you need a handful of quietness. What's he saying? He's saying there is a deep kind of rest He's saying there is a deep kind of quietness that is so powerful, it can calm us, it can cease our striving, it can cease our envy. There's a deep kind of tranquility that will 
stop us from the need to prove ourselves to everybody else in our envy that can give you a fresh life, even with another handful of work, when you know that everything is from God, when you know that you're surrendered to him, by the way, you could never get this by striving. You can never attain to it. It's something you could never earn. It's a gift from God, that handful of tranquility that will sweeten all your work. You have to receive that from God. It's a gift. That's what he's saying. But here's the second thing he says you need. Write this down. To live a life that's worth it. He says, not just that you know it's a gift from God. He says, but it's the pleasure of God that you need. Write that down. It's the pleasure of God that you need. In fact, notice two times in the verses right here, verse 26, he mentions the man who pleases God. It's really interesting. Why does he do that? Because he's talking about a believer as someone who's spoken of as someone who actually pleases God. Now, usually when we read our Bibles in English, it doesn't quite capture it because English is such a limited language. And by the way, you read this, someone who pleases God, and it doesn't sound that great. It sounds so generic. It sounds vanilla. I mean, if I went to a movie with somebody, you guys know that I love going to movies. I can't wait for theaters to open up again. But if I go to a movie with somebody, and I just walked out and said, oh, that movie pleased me, it doesn't sound like I enjoyed it very much. But what it really means in the Hebrew, this is so fascinating, it means that the believer is somebody that gives God pleasure. It's someone that God looks at, and you are his pleasure. You are his beauty. It's why I like the message translation. If you go to that here, not the New International, but go to this next scripture, the message, and you guys will see it here coming up on the screen. He says, God may give wisdom and knowledge and joy to who? His favorites. Isn't that interesting? What God is saying is that person who pleases him, if you're a believer, he looks at you, and you know what he sees? He sees a diamond. He sees something special. He sees a work of art. He, he looks at you, and his heart, it's just filled with delight. Now, what I mean when I say it's the pleasure of God you need is that if you know how much you bring God pleasure when you trust him, when you believe on him. And if you understood it, if you really internalized it, it would be the thing that gives you rest from your striving, from your work. It would give you rest from your work in your work. You know, the book of Zephaniah, the prophet speaks to the people of Israel with the most vivid language about what God thinks of his people. Notice what it says. He says, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. And look what it says. He will take delight in you with gladness. He will calm all your fears. And I love this picture. It says, he rejoices over you with singing or songs. Do you know that? Do you walk in the pleasure of God knowing what you really mean to him. Now, that could be you. How does that become you? Well, the first thing you need is to receive the gift of God. You have to get rid of this life under the sun thing and realize, no, there's life beyond it. And I'm going to start looking at that. The second thing you need is to understand what you mean to God. You need the pleasure of God. 
You need to know that you're his diamond. You're his work of art. He loves you. Finally, the third thing he says that you need, if you want a life that's worth it, when we're talking about achievement is, he said, it's the rest of Jesus Christ. That's what you need. And what is this? Well, it's, it's his gospel invitation. Notice Jesus says, and this is one of his most famous, famous lines. He says, come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy, what? He says, and I will give you something, what? Quietness, tranquility. You know what the word is in the Greek? It's the word Shabbat. It's the word for, do you know what Shabbat is? Shabbat is Sabbath. And he says, come to me and I will give you Sabbath. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's not just life under the sun. No, learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Now, there it is. Now, you say, how could I experience that? It's very simple. First, he says, who do you have to come to? Him. Notice he says, come to me. Guys, he doesn't say, come to that. It's not do all these things. No, he says, you come to me. You come to a person. You know, somebody once said to me, this is quite a while back, but he said, I'd be a Christian. He goes, I would be a Christian if you can give me an airtight, watertight argument for God. And you know what I want to say to anybody who thinks that way? I just want to say, well, read the Bible and read about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ never, Jesus Christ doesn't say when you read about him, just follow my teachings. He says, don't just come to my teachings. He says, you come to me. Read who he is. Read what he does. Read how he works. Read how he lives and you will see. God doesn't give us an airtight, watertight argument. God gives us an airtight, watertight person. And he says, if you would just come to me and relate to me. He says, that's what helps us. And then he says, second, you take my yoke upon you and you learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Meaning, give your life to me. Surrender your life to me. He says, let me start to be your ambition. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then let me add everything else to your life. And what happens is, when you begin to live with that disposition, you watch the change, the internal change. Guys, let me just close with this thought. Do you remember when Jesus was so troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember that picture? He said on the night before he died, he looked at God and he said, God, I'm troubled in my soul. In fact, he said, I'm in agony unto death. What happened? He had lost his rest. He had lost his tranquility. And what he did was he took our sins upon himself so that when we believe in him, God can look at us and sing over us. He lost his rest so that you can find yours. And then he says, if you would just let me quiet you with my love. And guys, I'm telling you, only Jesus can give you that kind of rest on the inside. (laughs) Guys, only there is a handful of rest, a handful of tranquility. And if you believe that, boy, you can rub that into your work. And you can go from two handfuls of work to one handful of work, and then what do you do with the other hand? 
you lift it to God. And you say, God, I want to receive from you all that you'd work in my life. And you rub that into what you do. And you say, God, fill it. Fill me. You know what? I'm going to tell you this. If you do that, if you make that decision today, just say, yes, one handful of work. But God, I receive you with my other hand, a handful of tranquility that only you can provide. You're my Shabbat. You're my rest. I'm going to tell you this. You may get less recognition in this life. You may. You may even get less contribution. But... It's the only contribution that will really last. Because life isn't just under the sun. The Bible says life is beyond it too. And if you begin to live for Him, you'll see it changing you forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for every person that's here. Just asking for Your blessing and Your strength to be upon them. I pray, God, that you would make yourself known to them. And as we search out these big questions, starting with this question of achievement, we want to say that we receive you. You are Lord of our life. You are Lord of everything. And would you just repeat this prayer after me? Jesus, I receive you. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I turn to you. Give me that handful of rest that will make my life complete. In Jesus' name. And everybody said,